qualified to get in, but there's only one space. Right. And they right. literally spent five hours just fighting for that one space. Right. And seriously, though, you could have just tossed it into the air and grabbed one, and that person would be perfect for our school. Welcome back to the Harbor Schools College and Career Counseling Podcast, where we seek to enliven conversations around purpose, 21st century careers, and university pathways. This is our aim to educate, agitate, inform, inspire, and otherwise empower our students to put their best foot forward in the pursuit of human flourishing. Why am I talking so fast? Because I have a lot to say. Let me set the scene for you. Now imagine you're an admissions officer at MIT, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, etc. It doesn't really matter, just that your employer is a highly selective institution. It's now mid-March and you've been reading 60 applications a day since the middle of October. You're down to the last spot that you can offer for this year and you have 50 qualified candidates to choose from. Everyone in the room with you is fried. You know everything you could possibly know about these applicants. Academically, they are all identical GPAs, test scores, advanced coursework. They are virtual carbon copies of each other. So, how do you choose? How do you come to a consensus? Now, this episode features someone who has some insights to offer on the subject. Her name? Ali Ip. She's the Director of Research for Quantum Prep, a higher education admissions consulting firm here in Hong Kong, or as Ali puts it, a college rejection prevention program. Ali has quite a story, which we didn't really talk about for this conversation, so let me give you the quick and dirty version now. A native Hong Konger, her family up and moved to the United States when she was 12, eventually settling in Boston. Ali excelled in the public school system and graduated at top of her class, eventually heading to MIT to major in chemical engineering and minoring in biology. After graduation, she joined the U.S. Army and achieved the rank of captain and was one of eight top gunners for the Patriot Missile System. After four active duty tours, she applied and was accepted to the Harvard Business School where she received her MBA. It was while at Harvard that Ali started to investigate the inner workings of highly selective admissions offices, which is the focus of our discussion today. In addition to her wealth of experience in the field, Ali approaches her work with a healthy dose of irreverence, not buying into the hype or trying to collect trophies to drive business to her firm. She is genuinely student-centered and her values are strongly aligned with those of THS. Now, as a disclaimer, I am not a fan of all the hype that surrounds the Ivy League schools or the other highly selective institutions that aspire to emulate them. We need to take a look at the data and make informed judgments accordingly. There's just no way that you can say 100% of the Ivy League schools are the best option for 100% of the students 100% of the time. A few years ago, I was at a conference for high school college counselors working in an international setting. The president of our professional organization said something to the effect of, quote, one of the biggest obstacles in our work is getting students and parents to understand that there are more than just 20 universities in the world, end quote. And that just about sums it up. The top 20% of students at every high school in every country across the globe is going to be applying to those same 20 schools. That's why you have ridiculously low acceptance rates now to a handful of institutions, which have been driven down even further this year as these more selective schools have gone test optional. As an example, MIT, which is technically not an Ivy, admitted just 4% of their 33,240 applicants, a 66% increase in applications year over year. But when you look at the undergraduate programs of origin for students admitted to Harvard Law, let's say, one of the top law programs in the US, 
you see institutions like South Dakota State, Boise State, Idaho State, Oklahoma State, a bunch of state universities of New York like Binghampton, New Fredonia, Paltz. Did you know Brigham Young University sent as many students to Harvard Law over the last three years as did Yale or Cornell or Princeton or Harvard for that matter? And BYU accepts 65% of their undergraduate applicants. Now Malcolm Gladwell drives this point home in his viral YouTube video, Why You Shouldn't Go to Harvard. And basically what he's saying in this video is it's better to be in the top 10% at, let's say, an Idaho State University than the bottom 10% at Harvard. And guess what? There's always going to be a bottom 10% at Harvard, right? So I'm not saying students shouldn't consider highly selective institutions. I'm just trying to provide a counterweight. So why even have this discussion? First of all, my hope is that it encourages students to build a diverse list of schools with a range of acceptance rates based on who they are and what their interests are. Secondly, when the legions are denied, the actual humans whom these choices impact will understand that it's not an indictment on their potential to flourish in this world. You know, not winning the lottery doesn't mean you don't have potential. Thirdly, it's an open secret that these institutions solicit applications from as many students as possible, regardless of qualifications, to drive down their application acceptances, increasing their ranking and raising their profile. Now, when someone applies to a highly selective institution, they are contributing to this insanity. So if you're going to be a contributor, for the love of all that is good in the world, make sure it's for the right reasons. So does this mean you shouldn't apply? Absolutely not. Just know that you are more likely to be struck by lightning or attacked by a shark at Disneyland. Okay, enough for me. Here's the conversation. Yeah, I was just uh, curious, I wanted to start with your, your work in graduate school, and um, you had mentioned that it was around like, how they selected college admissions processes, uh, and then just sort of what your discoveries were around that, and if there was you know anything uh, that, that surprised you there, or was it something you expect to find what you found? Um, I myself, I actually had interned while I was a student inside MIT's um, admission office. You know, I actually was an intern in the financial aid office, but um, but the two actually, you know, um, traveled, you know. So yeah, I actually interned right there as a student. So I know a thing or two, you know, about the process. And um, and when I went into graduate school, I was really interested in finding out like, you know, what they do to select students, because on one hand, I was actually studying education enterprises, you know, with the Harvard Ad School. You know, um, just trying to see like what the institution could actually do to help students. So you would see that on the news saying that the top institutions always try to accept a certain percentage of minorities, first generation students, stuff like that. So I want to know it for sure um, by doing by doing a project. And um, so I interviewed at um, Harvard, MIT, and Wellesley. And I was out of MIT, the one that I was most familiar with. And um, with institutions like MIT and engineering school, technical institutions, it is quite expected. And, um, and I really respect my own school, you know, um, for not actually caring about donations or legacy. Um, right. So that's MIT is really meritocratic. Um, however, you know, there are also constraints on um, the type of student they could um, accept, you know, because um, MIT also, that was a very, um, sensitive materials, you know, um, our biggest um, research partner is actually the Department of Defense. 
So yes, there are constraints that I, I do not want to um, go too deep into, but um, overall, you know, um, technical institutions such as MIT are very meritocratic. Um, many people right. would, um, would, would ask like, hey, you know, um, what kind of activity did your student do? You know, the students, you know, who got into MIT um, were not student presidents. You know, they, they were not those people who have like a long list of resumes. Um, so what have they done that's, that make them so amazing? Guess what? What they have done is they are the kind of people who constantly got beat up and then they rise up again. You know, react, I mean, reaction to set bad is one of the biggest thing for those technical institutions because it's tough. It's really right. tough to right. just survive right there. So that's MIT um, and the like, okay. Um, Wellesley, Wellesley is highly personal. I mean, Wellesley basically represents the best of liberal arts school, you know, and, uh, and Brandon, have, you having worked in um, the liberal arts school would, would clearly know that it's very personal. They really try to know you. And, um, and I clearly remember the day when I went into Wellesley for, for the interview. Um, I met the family outside and, and, and the admission officer was, they went outside of the fa of their office to meet with this family from Turkey, specifically from the country of Turkey. And, um, and basically it was the father who was right there. He said um, his daughter was from Turkey, is studying in Turkey, but she is not studying in Istanbul. You know, probably the only city, you know, that American would know um, about Turkey. Um, and he was nervous that, um, Wellesley would not know about the high school and hence his daughter would have no chance. So he took a, he, you know, while he was on business trip to Boston, um, he specifically made a trip to Wellesley just to express that concern. And the officer was wonderful. I mean, they talk, I, I mean, perhaps for hours because um, they talk for a real long time. You know, I went into the office for 30 minutes of meeting. I came out, they were still there. Um, and basically the admission officer was trying to assure the father that the admission would do everything they can, you know, um, around the regions to try to check out and learn about that school. And his personal visit to Wellesley certainly helped set up a good impression. So for, um, for top liberal arts school, you know, um, yes, you know, your academic excellence is being looked at, but, um, but they really value the personal relationship you develop with right. the admissions. Um, such things does not happen as much in MIT and, and Carnegie Mellon type of school, you know, um, because of the strict merit-based stuff. And then Harvard, huh? um, I try to leave it to the end because um, Harvard shocked me. Um, the admission officer basically told me that she knows nothing. <laughs> well, granted, um, I interviewed it an associate, you know, um, director, which is, you know, kind of, junior you know um she basically said no i to tell the truth i do not know um exactly how they accept their students you know we try our best on, on their end they try their best to send in um whoever students you know they think deserve to come in you know deserve a chance to get into harvard they try their best you know and of course um they try their best by eliminating the rest whom they think they don't have a chance, you know? And then she said this, um, which I'm not exactly sure um, whether it is kosher, you know, to share, is that um, every year there was a pile of files sitting inside the dean's office, which they are not allowed to read. Wow. Yeah, 
that's incredible. That's that that actually shocked me because um for MIT, it is actually really um open. Okay. Um the officers, you know, that I talked to, I mean, I talked to several officers, but um, but throughout like several years, because I went to MIT every year for visit, um, as many times as I can. And um, and one of the officers basically would say, like, you know, they would spend like five hours just debating the last two students. I mean, there one space left, and then like there were like, I don't know, 20 something file in the middle of the tables, you know, they're all qualified. And and honestly, you know, they, they took everything into consideration, you know, sexual orientations, you know, gender, race, activities. I, I'm not kidding though, like, yeah, we're being very frank right here, okay. Um, social economic statuses, we took everything into context and guess what, they are just us qualified to get in, but there's only one space. Right. And they right. literally spent five hours just fighting for that one space. Right. And seriously though, you could have just tossed it into the air and grab one and that person would be perfect for our school. But people are being very responsible. I mean, what I want to say is the admission officers, you know, a, a lot of times they're being villainized, you know, for, um, for rejecting really good people. But um, I actually want to advocate for them. They try their best. They really do. They try their best to, um, to find the best student possible and, and they feel the pain um, of rejections and, 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 and wait lists. But um, in Harvard's case, what shocked me was that um, they have a bunch of stuff that they are not allowed to read. Right, that's <laughs> interesting. So, so there's kind of the, the final decision on some files goes to some secret, like a uh, dark room in a basement somewhere on campus. Yeah, <laughs> they, in fact, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in fact, like, you know, um, every year in Crimson, in Harvard Crimson, you know, the, um, the student newspaper, um, they would publish their mission results and then they would publish um, how many valedictorian that is like the number one student in, in, in their own high school, they have received it, you know, that the, the application from, and then how many they have to reject. The fact is, Harvard has only a little bit above like 1600 spaces for freshmen. And there are, all, there are literally 4,000 valedictorians alone applying to it. Well, and never mind about the, the athletes and like, you know, mysterious, you know, people, you know, coming from behind that kind of stuff. Well, I think, you know, it's a really important uh, point that you make about the admissions officer perspective is because I think they do really connect with certain students. They do really want to fight for them in committee. Um, well, there's only, only so much you can do, you know, if you've got a 4% or 5% acceptance rate, it doesn't matter how much you love a student when it comes down to it, you know, it's, they just might not be accepted and it's completely outside of your control. Right. I've, now, I've right. heard that, um, and this, in fact, this was an article written by Tufts, uh, director of admission years back. And um, what he had to say is basically, you know, 70%-ish of all of the applicants coming into Tufts are academically capable. They're all capable to do well at our school. And so what we have to do is construct a system for how do you whittle that down because there's no way we don't have spot for this. Right. right? So um, uh, what are some of the things that you do work with your students to try to um, distinguish them, I guess, in the applicant pool? Going back to your comment about Tufts, um, how like over 75, um, over 70% of the students are academically qualified. According to my own research, um, the first round of elimination, okay, this is how I see um, the college admission 
process looks like, okay, it's not a mission. It's college rejection process. And um, our job as counselor, you know, and, and consultants right here is to do like, you know, college rejection prevention program, basically, you know, which will keep the student for as long as possible, you know, um, in the pile. And then the more time the admission officer, I mean, that's psychology right here, you know, um, the more time you spend on the on the application, the more attached you grew with that student. And then eventually you may spend five hours because like you have already spent what the heck, like, you know, um, many hours like pondering over that student. So eventually we spend the five hours, you know, inside that boardroom just to grill with other people. We just literally fight, you know, um, for, for that one slot, okay. Um, but, but anyway though, according to my own research, um, the first set of elimination that's academic, you know, that, that is they first look at the course rigor and that's course rigor in relations to your own high school, okay? Like if your high school um, offer 20 APs and you took only three of them, then wow, you are not being, you're not really trying. But if you go into a high school, you know, that provides like five APs and you took all of them, wow, you're super hot, okay? So course rigor, you know, is, is the number one thing they look at always, and they eliminate people on it, you know, um, specifically on schools like MIT, you know, if you don't have calculus, you're out. Um, you don't have AP physics um, or high level physics in the IBs, um, you're out for, for engineering, because I, we cannot afford to have like, you know, um, students like this to enter in the engineering school. So course rigor is extremely important. And then the second part is the GPA, you know, or the, or the IB predicted grade. And in this sense, the US schools are extremely similar to the UK school. And I would tell my clients that um, whenever you try to apply to a top US school, the best way to proxy yourself is to look across the Atlantic into the UK school. You know, because um, US school, you know, we never like to tell people um, where the cutoff is, but we all know, you know, with, uh, with all the top students right here, we have to cut something. So right. we actually will look across the Atlantic and look for proxies. And if you don't meet a certain standard, you know, with the top UK school like Imperial, okay, for engineering, if your, if your qualification does not meet the imperial um, engineering criteria, then probably you shouldn't try the top 10 or the top 20 engineering school in the, in the state. Okay, that, that's it. That, that really should save a lot of headache. Although there are people, you know, who always make the casing that um, it's not fair and all this stuff, you know, and, and then, you know, we just have to deal with things case by case. Um, and then the next part, you know, in the past, when SAT and ACT are still prominent, yes, we do cut people using ACT, SAT. And um, according to my research, um, which was done in 2007, you know, I found that at the top level schools, you know, about the top 20s, yeah, they could only eliminate um, students using academics, about like 30% of them. So that kind of matches, you know, um, what you just said about tops. You know, about 70% of the students who applied are academically qualified. But then again, though, um, how do you actually eliminate all the way down to the 10, um, to the five or 10%, you know, at the very top schools? Um, the rest of that is going into the murky water of fit. And that right. is, um, and, and that's where the, the, the spews is actually all about. 
If yeah. I could stop you just for a second, because um, I, I think no I want to uh, just interject a little bit here because uh, there's two really important things I want to highlight from what you said. The first is um, there's kind of a reason that U.S. schools, uh, their sort of cutoff line is not really well defined. They'll just say, right. everybody apply, you never know, let's just see what happens. Um, and a big part of that is because they want as many applications as possible because they want to drive their admission rate down, which increases their U.S. World News rank, right? And then the, <laughs> and then the second um, point is, uh, is that uh, with the test scores, is this is the other thing is that, that they can't really, even if you're a great student, if you don't test well and they admit you, they have to report, at least in the past, they have to report those scores. Right. And that's another yeah. sort of element in the, in the formula for these rankings. So if they were right. reporting lower test scores, that could potentially compromise the ranking. So they are always, right. yeah. So that those are the two points. And just to sort of give some background and, and context of, yeah, of why it is the way it is. So, but so let's yeah. get back uh, to the sort of the nebulous fit uh, and more of that sort of holistic yeah. process, right? So we've mm -hmm. got through the 70%, we've, we've cut the 30% out just purely off of test scores or GPA or whatever it is academically, cut them off. And now we're getting into this murky, nebulous fit component. Mm -hmm. Right, and, um, and in the fit component, um, this is where I believe, okay, I believe um, I am probably different from, um, from most of the consultants out there um, who actually just push a bunch of activities, you know, or even design so-called passion project for students. Because um, at the end of the day, the first thing the university will actually look at, you know, it's not your essays. It's not even your, your own resume. They look at the letter recommendations. I mean, they look at letter recommendations because letter recommendation actually has rating, you know, from the third party, that is from your high school counselor and two teachers. I mean, admission officers are not fools. You know, they you you just can't hard sell stuff. You just cannot hard sell them stuff. Okay, um, they want to first hear from the third party who are supposedly objective. Um, they want to learn about you from the third party. They want to know what kind of student you are. And if you have done anything extraordinary, your counsel and your teacher should mention about this. And then guess what? Later on, they'll go back into your applications and and try to look for those activities. Um, and, and so my, 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 my whole suggestions, no, my whole advice to, to the, to the many students is that, um, you know, if you have done, you know, a lot of stuff like externally, you know, like outside the schools, um, and then like, guess what? It doesn't impact your school community. You know, like when people mention about community service, they thought about stuff, you know, that people do, um, in the summer, like teaching English to rural Chinese student in Sichuan. I mean, I heard that every year from students um, who have family from China. And guess what? None of those students I've met ever want to be a teacher. They did that just to check boxes. And you know what? The admission officers are not idiots, okay? Like they, they want to first learn whether or not you want to be a teacher first, whether or not you did those things out of your, your own initiative or out of the resources that, that are given by your family, you know? And, um, and they will see that from your letter recommendation. The first thing university will look at is your letter recommendation. And this is where I think the game is actually fair. That's where I would advocate in saying that the American way of doing holistic review, no matter how quote um, unpredictable 
you know, or, or many people say it's unfair or whatever it is, it is actually very fair in many ways. If you come from the places with um with more resources, of course you can you can you can achieve more, you know, because your activities are purely resource driven. But then if you come from the places, you know, come from a place without much resource, you know, or connection or whatever, and you still manage to outdo your peer, you know, and, and you're doing is being recognized by your community, i.e., your counselors or, or and your teachers. Then guess what? You are citizen, you're a good citizen in your own community. And this is one student that every university would want to have. Just be a really good citizen to your own school. That is the key to um, going to top university. Never mind about the bells and whistles, you know, that you heard um, from the outside world, you know, saying that you must do this and this, so and so, um, just save some elephants in Africa, whatever, you know. Um, if you are not considered as a good citizen in your own community. You don't even serve your own, your, your, your most immediate community. How can you claim to be a good citizen elsewhere? It's extremely organic and it shouldn't cost you a dime. Yeah, you know, in, and I just wanted project, to, uh, so. just kind of a, listening to you talk kind of made me realize that on, on that level, the recommendation level, uh, that's really yeah. where the US system and the UK system part ways because the UK system, yeah. parents and families can request a letter of recommendations and read them. In the US system, uh, the students and parents have to sign off the FERPA waiver and they don't have mm -hmm. access to reading those recommendations. So uh, they can't massage those. They're, they're gonna be a very uh, honest uh, take uh, from a teacher's perspective on the student. So uh, that's a really interesting and uh, certainly that is a great point to emphasize, You know, be a good citizen yeah. of the school that you're at. That's first and foremost. Yeah, and um, and and I'm quite sure you know, like many good school counselor and teacher has been saying the same thing. But somehow it just sounds better when it's said by a third person, which is like just kind of crazy. But yeah, I mean, you know, I actually would encourage my students to really think about how you can contribute to your own school. Never mind about like community in in rural China that you have nothing to do with. I'm not kidding. You don't know those people. Yes, they are Chinese, but seriously, you really don't know them. Your only impact on them is that two weeks. I, I'm not joking though. So the letter recommendation is actually a big cut. And, and that is some, that's the reality that a lot of the parents couldn't imagine, you know, and, and, and despite of how many times I, I say it to the parents, they would not believe or they would just forget, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So this is one really important message. And it's only after they have read the letter recommendation, then they will read your resume. And then they will see like, you know, in your long list of um, activities, seriously though, people have no time, like inside the admission office, you know, to, um, to spend hours reading your stuff. Okay, um, they have to read on average, maybe 20 pages per student, but they have like on average seven minutes. Two things there, uh, I'm wondering if you could expand on, or at least uh, maybe confirm for me, because it sounds like part, partly this is also, there's these themes in an application. And if you're, all these activities aren't connected by a theme, then it just Amen. looks like you're checking off boxes. Amen. And then the, and then the second thing is that, uh, um, is that students are following uh, an in, a genuine interest. And then you can see, the different ways that they've investigated that interest uh, because it, 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 I'm assuming part of this is extrapolation on the part of the reader, 
But, you know, if you're not impacting your school community positively, you're not going to impact Harvard's community positively. MIT's, it's like if they're reading that, I go, well, this student just leaves and goes to China every year to, to do these different activities, and they're not really going to impact campus that much. Are those valid right. observations? Yeah, amen. 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 Um, I would like to, because we probably need to wrap up here in like the next oh, sorry, bro. No, no, 15 minutes or so. We got about 15 minutes left. And I try to get these things down to about 20 minutes that are manageable for people to listen mm -hmm. to. But I do want to um, talk about how COVID has changed things, and specifically in regard to highly selected universities. Um, now we're seeing the results, the admission results are out, and we're finding that uh, still about 75% of the admitted students have test scores, so they're testing very well. Um, so that seems to still be something that they're using, but application rates have been driven through the roof. So MIT is an example, it's over, hit a six, over a 60% increase in applications this year because they went test optional. I think Harvard, Yale uh, is probably in the 30 to 40%. Every highly selective institution is probably right. on average anywhere from 30 to 35% increase in their application pool, which is going to drive down the admission rate and going to make these right. schools even more difficult to get into. So what, what are your thoughts on that? And how do we move forward? We, we have been having a, a huge conversation on the counselor side, you know, the IEC side, you know, in our associations with NetEd and all stuff like, you know, thinking about like, you know, the institution probably should expand, should grow. Because um, over the past um, five years or so, you know, there has been an increase of, I, I think, I couldn't quite remember the number, but at least 40% of the high school graduates over the past like few years. And yet for the Ivy League, they only expand their spaces for 17% on average. So it's, you are not matching the growth, you know? And so you're creating artificial scarcity. What we should actually be prepared for is we should really just diversify. I'm not joking. You should look outside of, of, of just the few branding schools, you know, and, and really ask yourself, um, what does education actually means to you? You know, um, I mean, at, at, I mean, in, in, in the most fundamental way, okay, like 30 years ago, okay, I'm, I'm kind of old. 30 years ago, when I was looking at um, universities, um, I was actually thinking about good education. I mean, it is like university means good education and good education, having, by having good education will give you opportunity for work and all this stuff. Um, however, looking into the market right now in, in Asia, especially, you know, because um, the people who would go overseas are usually the better families, you know, the, the, the well-to-do families and stuff. Um, entering to university, yes, going to top university, you do get good education, but a lot of time, it's, it's a lot like, hate to say this, it's a lot like French shopping, you know, like, hi, um, do you really need to wear Chanel? I mean, Jordano's ladies actually work real well, you know, um, and, and, and they fit you. You know, H&M is awesome. They have variety right there, you know, and, and they do just as well um, for, for, for you. So I guess mentality right here needs to change. They need to think more about what does education means, you know, um, and, and then like try to apply to school, not only to the very top school. And, and, and the reason that you don't just apply to the very top school is not because you don't think you're good enough. It's the fact that you should also 
look further. If you are so, if you are so good a student, if you so want to be a good learner, you should actually look around you and learn more about what other school too, you know, could offer you. Great. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about briefly here is the, um, it's sort of, there's not officially so many slots, you know, admission slots per, per geographic area, but in kind of like unofficially there, there is actually. And I know, yeah, you know if you look at like do. the demo, demographic of a, you know, the top elite school, they're going to want to say that they've got pretty much every country represented on their, on their campus, as well as every state in the United States. So effectively what's happening is, you know, when you're going into committee, let's say is the international, if you're the international officers and you're going to international committee, you know, you've got X amount of spots for those international students. Right, correct. And, and they want a broad representation over the world. So how does that impact the student from, from, from Hong Kong, let's say? You know, the quota thing, again, is something that we cannot deal with. So, you know, the way that I try to help my client is that I, tell, I would tell them what we can do and what we cannot do. Quota is something we cannot do. Um, in fact, I, I give them very simple math, okay? Um, that eight Ivy League school plus MIT and Stanford. So that 10 schools, okay? I just want to try to find a whole number, okay? 10 really top schools that most um, overseas parents in Hong Kong will actually look at. Um, and then each of those schools offer less than 2,000 spaces. But let's run it up because we have UPenn and Cornell that set more than 2,000. So let's run it up and say like, you know, each of those schools, let's be generous. Um, they had 2,000 spaces each. So guess what? You got 20,000 spaces every year around the world. And then guess what? Um, I'm not going to say about this is quota, but I did run statistics, okay? Um, on average, approximately 10 plus or minus 2% of those spaces will go to students without the US passport. A lot of time on um, university will claim that, for example, UPenn, oh God, I just call our names, um, UPenn, you know, they would say like, hi, we have like 16%, like, you know, international. Uh, international. Well, a great percentage, although 16% are dual citizens, all right, baby? Um, you kind of claim them as international. Same thing with Columbia. I'm not kidding though, you can actually find that out in Google. It's not a secret right here. Um, so I, I kind of run an approximate number, approximately 10 plus or minus 2% of those spaces, of those 20,000 spaces actually go into international. So let's take a round number, 10%. So you have 2,000 spaces for country other than the US and include Canada. And, and guess what? Canada is the one country that actually sends in the most overseas students to, to the US. So, and, and then you think about like, okay, Greg, in, in the United Nations, there are almost 200 countries in the United Nations. Um, so you can actually basically do the math and, and, and then think about like, okay, what's the prospect it might be in Hong Kong? Okay, it, just, just do the math yourself. And these are the things we cannot change. So parents, we cannot change this. But then what we can do is, if you really find a program that you truly love, you know, like um, this year, you know, I, I had one student um, with Hong Kong passport only to get into Yale. Um, yeah, because like my, my two other students who got into MIT and, and, and other Ivy League schools are dual citizens. So I'm not going to count them. She is, first of all, an amazing student. She's really wicked amazing and the whole thing is we really find a specific program 
that she loves, that she could actually write long essay about, and and she can still like she is not still she is not exhausted about writing those essays. She actually likes it. We find programs that absolutely fit her, and you know what? We took a chance. We look at each other. It's like, yeah, dude, this program that we're applying to is less than five percent acceptance rate, but let's try it. And if we get in, hallelujah. If we don't get in, don't be sad. We have other schools. You know, she also got into like other really good school too, and she's thrilled about it. By the way, that same student was happy when she got into Loyola Marymount. Yeah, I mean, isn't that amazing? I, I love her because she truly loves the this particular major that she wanted to study. And when she got to LMU in California, she was thrilled. So. It's this kind of mentality that our students should have that, that I really wish, you know, um, to get to communicate down to all the listeners right here is that, yes, you can look at the best school possible, but don't look at them because of their brand. Look at them for their fit. Try your best right there. <laughs> well, Ali, yeah. I appreciate your time so much. And I think that's a good point to, to um, end this conversation on. So. Uh, if people want to find out more about your, your services and your company, where would they where would go to learn about that? Um, well, um, well, my company's name is Quantum, um, Quantum Prep, um, quantumprep.com.hk. Um, and um, you can actually learn more about our team. And we also write broads and insights you know, about um, different situations, about um, college applications. And yeah, I wrote several articles about six secrets that university don't want to tell you, <laughs> you know? and, uh, yes and that has a big part to do with the yield rates artificial yield rates that universities are trying to create um yeah feel free to read them right. well thanks so much for your time ali it's always good to talk to you yeah thank you so much brandon right. thank you bye-bye all right bye-bye